0: These are experts who I trusted to take care of my husband, who had already been through so much. And I didn't see the urgency around his care. I didn't see the attention to what was happening to him. I didn't see anyone taking responsibility for his well-being. And at that point, I knew I couldn't leave him in a place that I didn't trust.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Speak Up For Your Health. I'm your host, Dr. Arkel Giorgio, and in this podcast, I have conversations with patients about how they found their voice, figured out how to advocate for themselves, and finally got the medical care they needed. My goal, to give you ideas about how to speak up the next time you're getting care. This episode is part two of Chris Patro's story. If you didn't hear part one, here's a quick recap. Chris shared the surreal experience she had when her husband Dave, at 53 years old, had a sudden cardiac arrest. Chris saved Dave's life by doing CPR for nine and a half minutes. But also, Chris was completely familiar with his medical history and medications, and maybe more importantly, Chris and Dave, even though they were in their early 50s, had formalized their advanced directives. So Chris was comfortable or as comfortable as she could be with how Dave would want to live or not live. All this gave Chris the strength and the confidence to strongly advocate for her husband when he was in critical condition and unable to speak for himself. Dave beat the odds, and one month later, he was stable enough to be transferred to Bethesda Rehabilitation Hospital. And that's where we ended that last episode. In part two the story takes a turn. You'll hear what happened when Dave became unstable, was transferred back to acute care, and Chris lost trust in the care he was receiving. That's when Chris unleashed what she calls Patro 3.0. Enjoy the show. Where we left off last time was that Dave was doing well in rehabilitation at Bethesda Hospital until he wasn't doing well and he took a turn for the worst and on August 13th, he was transferred to the emergency room at St. Joseph's Hospital in St. Paul because he was having some stroke symptoms. So Chris, what was going on at that time?
0: I had gone back to work part-time. And so on my way home, I would always stop and be with Dave for a few hours before I went home to the kids. And um, we were sitting there and all of a sudden he said, I, I'm i feeling kind of funny and then I saw the left side of his face was starting to droop, you know, the, the corner of his mouth. And he said that his vision was getting, uh, he said, funny, like his vision was narrowing. And I immediately knew that this, you know, these were some classic signs of a stroke. And we immediately you know, got the care team in there. And they, at Bethesda, they don't have any emergency department. They're a rehabilitation hospital. So they assessed Dave's symptoms while also calling 911. And the nearest hospital was St. Joseph's, which was just four minutes across the interstate. And so at that point, I thought, what else could possibly happen to us? But I also knew that time was brain and we needed to get him to an emergency department. Once again, here was yet one more different hospital we got into the emergency department and they started to assess Dave. And again, you know, I had to take my role as his walking medical record because it was an emergent situation. I told him he was a type 2 diabetic. These were the medicines he was on. I also let them know that at the U of M hospital, he didn't respond well to Ativan, which is one of the anti-anxiety because they wanted to calm him down. Because in this situation, Dave had awareness of what was happening. And so I could say, no, he doesn't respond well to that. And they kind of looked at me funny, like, who are you to tell us what he will respond to? I'm like, I've been with him in the hospital for the past month. So they did an assessment. They didn't find any indication that a stroke was happening at that time. And yet, they wanted to admit him to the ICU for observation. So, on we go to be admitted at St. Joe's. And based on some of the tests they did, they wanted to perform a test first thing the following morning called a TEE, which is a trans echocardiogram, because there was a chance that he had an abnormality in his heart called a fibroelastoma, which they said could be putting him at an increased risk for stroke. And so, the TEE test would help determine whether that was perhaps causing or contributing to these symptoms. Sounds reasonable. Yeah. So first thing the next morning, he had to fast for this test, which is a big deal for somebody who's diabetic. But again, it made sense if the test was happening within eight hours. I come back to the hospital first thing the next morning and it didn't happen. You know, we waited and waited. Finally, I went out and asked about it. And they said, oh, it's been delayed. You know, it'll happen in an hour or two hours. And then again, then they said it was going to happen at one o'clock. This was getting into dangerous territory for Dave, because again, he's a diabetic and has to regulate his blood sugar. And also because we're scared, right? He could be having a stroke at any moment. And we want to prevent that. And so at one o'clock, again, when nobody came in to talk to us, I went out and asked what was happening. And they said, oh, well, we're going to have to reschedule him for tomorrow because some other patients came in. And that's when and I call it when PATRO 3.0 got launched.
1: <laughs> and, and watch
0: out for PATRO 3.0. <laughs> nobody wants to see that. I am a great partner. In care and in planning and everything until I get pushed across the line where my family members health and lives are at risk, and then it's Patro 3.0 and that I scare even myself. What does that look like? What did you do because I've never seen you like that I'm not't oh, to, to. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: you know it doesn't involve screaming or yelling it doesn't involve fit throwing what it does involve is not settling for anything else than answers and action. When they said that, you know, oh, they were gonna reschedule for tomorrow, I was very clear that that was not acceptable. And they said, well, there's nothing I can do. Well, then take me to the nurse manager, take me to the doctor on call. And I would keep working my way up the food chain until we got him that test as promised. And so he wouldn't have to fast anymore as a diabetic. And I just didn't let up. And I have a very direct, stern, I'm going to keep going voice that eventually resulted in him having the test at two o'clock that afternoon. And the thing is, Arkel, I didn't care anymore about making friends. I cared about making the right decisions on behalf of my husband, because he was still experiencing the facial droop and the vision problems. And we got it done. And the answer was great. They didn't see a cause for alarm in terms of this potential abnormality, but I ruffled a few feathers. This has
1: come up in several of the other podcast episodes that I've recorded with guests is that they finally got to a point where they had to ruffle some feathers Mm -hmm. and it got done what needed to get done. They worried that there would be retaliation but there was never any retaliation in those stories. Was there any that you experienced?
0: Um, Actually, I experienced the opposite. The medical team that I interacted with treated me like they were afraid of retaliation. Mm -hmm. And this came on the heels of the second incident that happened at this hospital, where after the test, they asked me to leave Dave's room so they could transfer him from one chair back to his bed. And, you know, this happened every day while I was there. And so I gave them about 10 minutes. I came back and they say, oh, we're not quite done with him yet. Could you wait a few more minutes? Okay. So I did. And I came back and the curtain was still pulled. So I pulled back the curtain and I saw all of this activity around my husband, like frantic activity. And it turns out that when they transferred him from the chair back to his bed, they pulled out his tracheostomy. Wow. Now... My question to them was, what the hell just happened? And the nurse who had been moving him said, well, his trach fell out. I said, what do you mean it fell out? He's had it in for over three weeks. He's had two ambulance rides. He's been at two different hospitals. And you're saying that it just fell out? And Chris, I
1: just want to clarify, when his trach fell out, was it connected to a ventilator or was he breathing independently?
0: It was connected to a ventilator.
1: Oh, my goodness. So, Mm -hmm. oh, I didn't realize that the first time I heard this story.
0: It wasn't doing all the breathing for him, but he was still attached to the ventilator. Wow. And so he'd never been without one. And they said, you should step out. And I said, I will not step out and you will put that back in right away. And they said, well, we need a doctor to put that back in. And they said, he's 40 minutes out. And then? So there's my husband laying with an open hole in his neck. I know there must have been angels somewhere because he was managing to breathe without the trach. And he really didn't have an awareness of what was going on. And so I stayed with Dave and eventually the respiratory physician came in and it took maybe two or three minutes to reinsert the trach. But at that point, I thought, what kind of incompetence is happening here. And again, that's when I started calling every resource possible to get Dave transferred out of St. Joe's and back to the University of Minnesota. You know, when
1: people think about, well, what's that right moment that a situation has crossed a threshold where I need to get a second opinion, I need to get transferred out of this institution into another institution, it seems like the common answer to that question is, When I lost trust, it's not one error that happens, but it's when you lose trust. Is that what the breaking point was for you?
0: That is exactly the breaking point. These are experts who I trusted to take care of my husband who had already been through so much. And I didn't see the urgency around his care, I didn't see the attention to what was happening to him. I didn't see anyone taking responsibility for his well being. And at that point, I knew I couldn't leave him in a place that I didn't trust. And when they said, well, that's not possible, I said, it will be possible and you will make it happen. And I reached out to all my contacts at the U of M. And I had a meeting with his entire care team, which also included the medical director for the hospital, patient relations, and several other leaders. They called me into a conference room because I think they were afraid of what I was going to do about this. And they said, what can we do to make you feel comfortable about your husband being here? And I said, you can make me feel better by getting him the hell out of this hospital. And I'm sorry for the language, but I had had enough. Like you said, they had lost my trust and my husband's life was in the balance. I was not going to take chances at trying to rebuild relationships at such a critical time. It is not
1: logistically easy to get a ventilator dependent patient out of one hospital and into another hospital. And so how long did that take?
0: He went in on the 13th. He got transferred to the University of Minnesota on the 17th. So four days end to end. Okay. And I have to tell you, here's the difference in the care. We were welcomed there. It was kind of like norm from cheers you know when he walked into the bar they're like dave and they knew me and not only did they recognize us but immediately his room was set and they had all of his medical records handy they were up to date on his case they took proactive measures to do testing and everything right when we arrived and i never felt for once that they didn't have our back Let me take a
1: moment to share some insights about transfers between two acute care hospitals. This happens about 500,000 times a year in the U.S. And by far, the most common reason is that one hospital is unable to provide specialized care that a patient needs, like burn care or advanced neurosurgery. And so they're transferred to a facility that has those services but another valid, just less common reason for a transfer is when the patient or their family is dissatisfied with the quality of care and loses trust. Fortunately for Chris, Dave's transfer happened relatively quickly because Dave had recently been at the university hospital. But to be honest, it's usually much more complicated. And here's why. Patients absolutely have the right to transfer out of a hospital, But there's not an absolute right to be admitted to your preferred hospital. The receiving hospital has to agree to that transfer, and there needs to be a physician at the receiving hospital who will accept responsibility for that patient's care. And this can get really sticky. Let me give you an example. Let's assume there's a patient who has surgery at hospital A, but develops complications, is unhappy with the care, and wants to be transferred to hospital B the surgeon who accepts the patient in hospital B is taking on the responsibility and frankly, the malpractice risk for someone else's complications. So what should you do if you find yourself in this very uncomfortable situation? You may want to start by pursuing another option first. Request a second opinion by another specialist in the hospital who can weigh in on your care plan. Hopefully this will get things back on track. But if you still feel strongly that you need to get to another hospital, reach out to the hospital's case manager or social worker. They often have experience supporting patients in these very tricky situations. Chris, I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but when Dave was at Bethesda and exhibited signs of a stroke and he was taken to the closest hospital, the closest ER, which was St. Joe's, did it ever occur to you To go back to the U. Because as we remember from part one of this story, you made the tough decision early on that he would go to the hospital most likely to give him a good outcome. Did you think about that when he was being transferred the second time?
0: I did. And I'm glad you asked that because I actually requested when the EMTs arrived, I said, Well, can't you take us back to the U of M? And they said, Well, St. Joseph's is the closest. Emergency department. And if he's having a stroke, like I said, you know, time is brain. So, based on what I knew of the window in which a stroke needs to be treated, I went with the recommendation to go to the nearest hospital, never thinking that his care would be anything but the optimal care we had received at the U of M.
1: Fair judgment to make at the moment. Fair. But I do bring it up to say that a listener may want to pause if they're faced with this situation and think what's the best hospital to go to, even if it takes five extra minutes, at least consider that.
0: I agree. Yeah. I think that would be a great takeaway. Um, you never want to have to plan for the worst, but then again, you never want to have to figure it out on the fly. I thought Dave was in the clear and on his way home and then look at this unforeseen crisis in between getting better and getting home. And, um, I would never want to feel like I'm at a substandard medical facility for my care or for my loved ones' care, and that's what we had to go through. But what really made me appreciate the level of care that we got at the U of M.
1: Yeah, that was an unfortunate detour. And before we talk about how he did it, the U, and mm-hmm. and how he's doing now, I do want to go back to one question about the advance directive. Mm-hmm. So. Being someone's healthcare power of attorney means that you are their voice when they cannot speak for themselves. So, at some point in this journey, Dave was awake enough and I think alert enough to be able to speak for himself. Did he ever weigh into his own care? Because legally, once he's able to speak for himself, he was able to make his choices. How did that work out at a practical level?
0: Well, it worked out in part because, like I had described earlier, Dave and I knew what each other's strengths were in terms of areas of expertise. And so, you know, I deferred to him his knowledge on some things he deferred to mine on others. So when it came to all things healthcare, he looked to me for my opinion, my guidance, which was great. We did that before this ever happened. When Dave emerged from his medically induced coma, he had a brain injury. He understood he had a brain injury and he was very driven to get better. He also knew enough that he couldn't articulate his thoughts in the way that he used to. So again, knowing that the wishes that he had when prior to having a brain injury were spelled out, I could at least go back to those and say, "Dave, this is what we talked about." Is that still what you want? And he could nod yes or no, or try and you know have a conversation. And when I checked with him on that, it was still what he wanted.
1: That level of self-awareness is really a gift, a gift to him, a gift to you, a gift to your family. Because mm-hmm. had he not had the self-awareness legally, mm-hmm. the clinical staff would have to follow his direction. So I just point that out as a real positive in this, a real positive.
0: Um, How did he do at the U? (laughs) (laughs) He was at the U of M for a few days just to make sure he was neurologically stable. His stroke symptoms disappeared. They made sure his vitals were fine. Everything checked out. And then they said, "Okay, you know, he's ready to go back to Bethesda. Dave made it his mission to make progress every single day. And so when they would have him do physical therapy, he would say, let's go one more time. When he was doing occupational therapy, I want to do it again. And every day he wanted to make progress walking, talking, sitting, hand dexterity to the point where I think he completed everything at Bethesda within two or three weeks. And then they sent him to another rehabilitation hospital, a step down, and they kicked him out of there after one week. Because Because he was doing so well. Yeah. And he went into the hospital on July 7th, came home on September 10th. We certainly had our conversations with his doctors about what he could and couldn't do and the kind of rehabilitation he would have to continue as an outpatient. but you know, 65 days, four hospitals, and a lot of praying, hoping, calling in every resource we thought possible. And he came home and got the rest of the way better. Yeah. So it's been four years. And Dave said it's taken him until earlier this year, where he's felt entirely recovered. He still struggles with a few things that would be invisible to anyone who hasn't known him for years. But the only thing that's different is he's a little less practical. He always used to say, oh, we shouldn't go on that vacation because we have to save money. Or we shouldn't buy that house because it's not practical. Today's Dave will say, you know what? Life is short. Let's do what we can while we can. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful life. What an amazing
1: story that you are all doing well. It would have been wonderful to not have to survive that, but you did. And maybe underneath of that, there are some positives. And I know that you and Dave and your family have shared your story more broadly. I know you've worked with the American Heart Association and you're also writing a book. Tell us about that.
0: We decided to write a book about our experience because like I would mentioned before, it took a chain of survival. It took a village to help Dave survive and thrive post-cardiac arrest. And as we look back at all the things that came together to make this happen, we saw them as points of light in this incredibly dark time. We decided to write a book called Night Vision, Seeing the Light in Your Darkest Hour, because there were so many things that kept us going when we thought all hope was lost. And if we can share that experience with others, And not only help them access the resources that can help them through this tough time, but also help them see those little points of light along the way that remind them of who they are, of what they're made of, of the community that they have grown through the years. That's what sees you through to the other side. And that was a great learning for us. And we also want to share the importance of doing the things that you have to do before anyone gets sick. And also not being afraid to ruffle feathers. When I launched Patro 3.0, I knew it was life or death. And I didn't care if people liked me. I just cared that they did what was best for my loved one. And um, like I said, I don't like to bring her out too often, but she's quite effective when I do.
1: (laughs) Well, I can't wait to read it. And I will say that you had written a first book called I witness miracles based on the good news that you saw while you were a journalist in other people's stories. But it seems like you've witnessed a little bit of your own miracle in this story. So, Chris Patro, thank you so much for sharing your story and your journey. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Arkel. It's a pleasure talking with you and sharing our experience.
1: What a story, and thankfully, with a happy ending. And the key takeaway is that if you are the advocate for someone who's in the hospital, regardless of the diagnosis, advocate and keep watching like a hawk the entire time they're in the hospital, not just when they're critically ill. Because while doctors, nurses, and hospital staff try really hard to get things right, oversights and mistakes happen and you are an extra set of eyes that can prevent an error. And then when necessary, unleash your calm, respectful version of PATRO 3.0. Thank you for listening to this episode of Speak Up For Your Health. If you enjoyed it, I hope you leave a rating and review, recommend this podcast to friends and family, and share the link on social media. If you have your own story about finding your voice and advocating for yourself, share it with me. I'd love to hear it. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook. The links are in the show notes. Speak Up for Your Health is produced and edited by Jenny Lee Park and myself. Music is by Alex Tepper. Cover art is by Sean Sutton. Marketing and social media is by Shelby Epstein.